this semester, what we've been doing uh, each Wednesday night is we've been looking at a portion of Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's one of probably the most famous sections of Scripture. And essentially what we've been looking at is the idea that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us into a life of flourishing. Uh, Jesus, before he preaches, describes his kingdom. His kingdom is at hand, and it's marked by healing, by restoration. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes what it looks like to live for a king who is in the business of restoring and healing, and what it looks like to find our life in him. And tonight, we're coming to one of the more quoted sections of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You've probably heard people say, Uh, turn the other cheek or love your enemy. Um, Maybe you've heard those from scripture. Maybe you've just heard people say them. Uh, That's from the passage we're about to read. Uh, In the midst of a world that then and now is filled with violence and betrayal, Jesus invites us into a kingdom that will not be marked by violence or revenge, but by love. Uh, Jesus' kingdom is going to be marked by love. And when you hear those words, turn the other cheek, uh, love your enemy, uh, maybe even hear, wow, a kingdom that's marked by love, that sounds beautiful. Like, wow, a place where people love enemies. Like, that sounds attractive, and yet it is also challenging, especially when it comes home and it's it's loving your enemies. It's not just an idea, uh, but then all of a sudden you have someone that's hurt you or persecuted you. John Stott, who's a British pastor, passed away a few years ago, but he said this. He said, uh, talking about this passage, nowhere is the distinction of the Christian countercultural more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit more compelling. Talking about this passage, it is. It's really countercultural. He's saying it's countercultural because no one naturally loves enemies, but it's also compelling. It also shows us our need for the Holy Spirit because no one wants to love enemies. It doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, so it shows us how countercultural Christianity is, and it shows us how dependent we are upon God to live this out. So we're going to look at just two things tonight. Um, controlling our revenge, controlling our appetite for revenge uh, when we've been sinned against. And then secondly, uh, we're going to look at what it looks like to love our enemies. Uh, What does it look like to control our appetite for revenge? What does it look like to love our enemies? Let me read for us Matthew 5, and we'll be starting in verse uh, 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, or or go one mile, go go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we read this passage and we are confronted uh, with both the beauty and the challenge of it, Lord. Uh, We are in a room full of people, Lord, who even this week uh, have been sinned against, who've been hurt, and who've been reminded of pain in the past. And so, Father, tonight we pray that as we look at your word, Lord, we regain an idea of, of what it looks like to respond to evil as you respond to evil, Lord. What does it look like to live in this world as those, um, not so much with an appetite for revenge, but those who love? Teach us, Lord. We need your help and blessing in Christ's name. Amen. There's a fairly common scene uh, in our house. We have four young kids, and uh, they're all at—they're all old enough now to where they can physically fight with one another. Uh, our youngest, Lucy, has just learned that she can kind of hold her own, especially on the trampoline. She's had to. Um, but typically, the way these, these arguments start, uh, there's an argument. Uh, usually a toy is involved or something. Sometimes it's food. Uh, and someone will do something that bothers the other person. Um, then something is said or a tongue is sticked out. And then uh, the first blow is thrown. And then what inevitably happens is, uh, and you see this at work in our world too, uh, when one person is hit, they don't respond usually with an equal hit. They actually, at least our children anyway, they want to hurt the person back worse. Um, so one usually is, you know, is then responded to with two punches uh, or three or a scratch as well. Uh, you see the same thing at work in wars, honestly. Um, wars usually end when someone just does more violence to the opponent. Uh, occasionally they don't get to that point, but most of the time, usually, they just keep escalating until someone surrenders. And Jesus says when we are wronged, that is going to be our temptation. And, and, and God's known this is true of his people all throughout history. He's known that, that our natural tendency is going to be want to get people back. Uh, and especially when we're angry, we're going to probably hurt them more than they hurt us. Which is why in the Old Testament, God gave the civil government's laws. And and one of them was, from Exodus 21, the one that Jesus quotes here, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, a stripe for a stripe. Uh, And and those laws kind of sound primitive to us, but what they did for a culture that had a new justice system was it actually gave judges clarity. And it took vengeance and revenge out of the hands of those people who had been hurt. And, and so rather than getting someone back worse than they got you to teach them a lesson, uh, it actually gave clarity. Uh, now, if someone did something to you, that they received the same punishment. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, it takes the emotions out of the judgments that were handed out. Now, 
That's a few thousand years before Jesus is speaking here. The problem is when Jesus is speaking to these people, some of the rabbis and teachers had taken those same laws and basically they were, they were designed for the government to use. They were designed for the rulers of Israel to hand out. And what they had begun doing is basically applying those laws to their personal relationships. So, okay, so you hurt me, well, I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to kind of take justice into my own hands. You did that to me? Well, well I'm going to do it back to you. And so Jesus comes along and he says something pretty revolutionary. He's not undoing the old law, but in the context of personal relationships, because all the illustrations he's about to give are in the context of, of, of personal interactions. He says, resist the one who is evil. Now, we'll talk about this later. Jesus here does not say, uh, don't resist evil, but he says, don't resist one who is evil. Or some of your translations might say, do not retaliate against the one who has done evil to you. Jesus here is talking about personal retaliation against someone who has wronged you. And, and, and so, so, so here's the principle. He starts off with the principle. Do not retaliate against the one who has done evil to you. And then he kind of gives four illustrations. Um, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Um, this is not talking so much as about someone physically hurting you, although it does have that component, as it does as someone insulting you. When Jesus is speaking in this culture, most of the people he's speaking to, as is true today, were right-handed. And so if you slap someone, naturally you didn't hit their right cheek, you hit their left cheek. Except if you slap them with the back of your hand. And to slap someone in that culture, even today, was hugely insulting. But to slap someone with the back of your hand was even more, it, it, it was the highest form of insult you could physically do to someone. And Jesus says, when you are insulted in that way, turn the other cheek. If anyone sues you in court and takes your tunic, give him your cloak. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go another. This, is, this might be the most obscure to us because this is foreign to us. But back then, governments, and especially in this case, the Roman government had the right to tell people, you know what, we need help moving our military equipment. And it was, it was under that law they could ask citizens in that country to help them move things one mile. And Jesus is saying, if they ask you to go one mile, go a mile more. Uh, if someone begs for you, give to the one who begs for you. Uh, but here's the deal. So, so, so what Jesus is describing is, is someone who is responding to need or injury or insult, not with revenge, but actually with patience and not responding back with violence, not responding to hate with hate, to sin with sin. But I think it's easy for us to get focused on those examples. Uh, as in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not so much consumed here with you and I being sued and someone taking our tunic. Uh, he's more concerned with the principle at hand that we do not retaliate against evil with evil. Um, we don't respond to violence with violence. And, and, and so the call of this passage, and this is important for us to understand, the call of this passage when we're reading this is not, okay, 
how do I follow these four commands in the exact way Jesus is commanded? Rather, the call of this passage is to ask ourselves the question, am I becoming the person Jesus is calling me to be? Am I, call, am I becoming the type of person Jesus is calling me to be? Am I more interested in my belongings than the good of others? Am I more consumed with my property than the good of society? Am I more interested in getting back at the person than I am interested in my good and their good? Am I more interested in serving myself than I am serving the community? Am I more interested in preserving my reputation than I am in cultivating a heart like Jesus? Jesus himself embodied this perfectly. Peter sums it up well in 1 Peter 2.21. He says this. He's talking about how Jesus exemplifies exactly what he's preaching here. 1 Peter 2.21-23 says this. For to this you have been called. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, the, to him who judges justly. And Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing. He's inviting us to trust him and to trust the judge who judges justly. He's inviting us to find life in him, to be more consumed with his glory and his reputation and the flourishing of others than our own flourishing. He's calling us to be generous and self-giving because he himself is a God who is generous, who gave up his own son for us. Now, I hope some of you at this point are wondering, but I also thought Jesus cared about justice. And I thought Jesus cared about righteousness. And I thought Jesus does care about like when people sin against us. And, and let me affirm, absolutely, this passage is not like a free pass for people to do evil. It's not a license for people to do whatever they want, to abuse the laws. And hear me, if someone has used this passage to excuse their hurt against you, they are going against Christianity. Uh, if someone has abused you, for example, in any manner, whether that's physical, sexual, emotionally, spiritually, um, that is wrong. And Jesus says in Luke 17, 3, we're to call out sin. We're, we're to rebuke those who sin against us. This passage is not calling us to turn a blind eye to sin. Jesus here is warning against retaliating against a person who is evil and does evil. Jesus is very clear. We are called to resist evil. Uh, we're, we're called to resist the evil one. James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9. Um, e even Christians oppose each other in the early church. Paul calls out Peter when he sees Peter treating Gentile Christians as inferior. Uh, it says he resists him in Galatians 2. 
Uh, the Bible talks about resisting invasions, about countries resisting invasions from other countries that are done unjustly. So, so yes, the Bible is concerned. This, this passage is not to say that we are to turn a blind eye to justice or to injustice. What this is a warning against is taking justice into our own hands, actually increasing sin. How do you respond when someone insults you? How do you respond when someone hurts you? It can be tempting in that moment to think, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to send a message, whether it's now or five years from now, and I'm going to make them know they should never, ever do that again. And our temptation is to think, we can believe in that moment, if I hurt them back worse, then I'll feel better and the situation will be better. And some of you know from experience, that never actually delivers on its promise. Even if you've gotten revenge, you don't feel better and it does not make the situation better. Hate often produces more hate. Violence often produces more violence. And the Bible is clear that when we do that, we are not following in the footsteps of Jesus. And we're actually creating more hate and more violence. Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this passage. He said this, he says, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence and is just as injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. So, so that's what Jesus is calling us to do in the, in the face of being insulted, in the face of being hurt. He's calling us not to retaliate. So what are we supposed to do? That's what we're going to look at next. When we are sinned against, Jesus says we're not supposed to respond in anger, but what are we to do? We've seen Jesus earlier entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Uh, we can go through avenues of justice. Uh, but secondly, in this passage, what he commands us to do is to love them and to pray for them. To love our enemies and to pray for them. Pray for the one who persecutes you. To love our enemies. Uh, to actually think of ways maybe we can even serve them or encourage them. We're, we're to pray for the one who persecutes us. Um, I love Martin Luther King Jr. later in that ser sermon says this. He says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend, for it has creative and redemptive power. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It has creative and redemptive power. There's probably not a work of art or literature or music that better illustrates what Jesus is talking about in this passage than Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. And some of you, I'm sure, have heard this at some point, uses an illustration to describe this. But there just isn't, there's just not a better illustration, so I had to use it. Um, maybe you've seen the musical uh, or the movie. Uh, if you haven't, you need to. Or go read the book. That would be even more impressive. And then you can tell people, like, I've read the book. Um, it's long. But the, the musical and the movie based on the book are both outstanding. And, and, and if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it chronicles the life of a number of people. But mostly the main character is Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean's a prisoner. He goes to prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Uh, he's supposed to go there for four to five years. He ends up trying to escape. So they add more years. 19 years in prison. He spends 19 years in a working prison and is finally released 
but in France at that time, uh, when you were released, uh, you were given your ID card, and on that ID card, everyone knew you were a convict. And so as he's leaving, he's going, he's trying to find a place to stay in this small town, and no one will take him in. And finally, he goes to this house, and a bishop lives there. And the bishop let, lets him stay in the house, cooks him a warm meal, gives him a bed, treats him like a human being, like he hadn't been treated in 19 years. But Jean Valjean is so, his mind is so warped. All he can think about is surviving, and he sees this man has a lot of wealth. And so in the middle of the night, he gets up, and he takes the bishop's silverware, his silver plates, and he leaves. And the next day, he's found out by some police officers. They can tell he's a convict. They know this silver doesn't belong to him. And so they bring him back to the bishop's house. He tells them where he got it. And the bishop comes out. Uh, and at this point, I mean, he's a bishop. You know, in that culture, that, and, and still to this day, bishops were highly respected. And here's a convict with all this silver. The priest at that point could have just said, yeah, he took all this. Send him back to prison. And he would have done life in prison. And instead, he actually rebukes Jean Valjean. And he said, why did you do that? You forgot to take the silver candlesticks as well. And he goes back into his house and he gets even more silver and brings it to him. And the police are there dumbfounded. Jean Valjean is dumbfounded. This, this bishop had every right to get him back in jail. He had every right, not, not to get him back in jail, he had every right to get all the silver back and to send him to jail. But what's beautiful about that picture is that the bishop did not stand on his rights. He didn't insist on his rights. But he actually had an opportunity to seek the good and the flourishing of someone else. And he extended mercy to Jean Valjean. And it changed his life. It transformed the course of Jean Valjean's life. From that moment, he began to give away. He spent the rest of his life building businesses, giving away his wealth. It was a transformational moment because you had this man who didn't insist on his own rights, didn't insist on getting retribution, didn't insist on getting even, but sought the good and the welfare of someone else. This is what Jesus calls us to do. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here is quoting Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 says, do not take a grudge against the sons of your own people. Uh, it, calls them, it calls them earlier to love their neighbors. Um, but later in the passage, and it, it seems like the Israelites at this time had forgotten this. Later in that same passage, Leviticus 19, just a few verses later, it says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Israelites at the time had taken that command to love your neighbor, and it basically said, well, since I'm called to love my neighbor, that must mean I'm supposed to hate my enemies. That's why Jesus said, he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But what they had forgotten is that the command never said that in the Old Testament. In fact, they were supposed to love and respect 
the stranger among them. Exodus 23, 4 goes even further. If you see the ox of your enemy going astray, return it to them. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And Jesus says in verse 45, when we do this, we are sons of our Father who are in heaven. Not when we do this, we earn the right to become sons of our Father in heaven. But when we do this, we are giving the world a glimpse of what our heavenly Father is like. When we love our enemies, when we seek their good, we're actually reflecting the love of God. For Jesus' original hearers, when they heard enemies, their mind immediately would have gone to the Roman Empire. Israelites had been their land, their property. Rome had come in. Now they're ruling. They literally had a visible enemy there. Not many of you have military forces that you can count as an enemy, but you have people who have hurt you. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a person. Maybe they've done extreme harm to you physically. Maybe it's someone that bothers you or has insulted you in front of your friends. Who is it for you? Who is it that is hard for you to love? Who is it that you would never find yourself wanting to encourage, wanting to love, wanting to pray for? Jesus is calling us to love that person, to pray for that person, to love them, to think of ways you might actually be able to encourage them or serve them, to pray for them. I do have to do like the, the slight caveat here. Some of you have people in your lives who have done things to you, injured you, abused you in such a way that they have actually, whether it's by law or for your own safety, it is not wise for you to be in their presence. And, and so I want to say that right now. This passage is not calling us to put ourselves in the hands of an abuser or in the line of fire. But what it is calling us to do is to think, what, it, what would it look like? What might it look like to love that person and to pray for their repentance, to pray for justice? Pray for those who persecute you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. I love this. Through prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. In prayer, and we're going to talk a lot more about prayer next week. Um, that's the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a topic that is always applicable. But Jesus here is calling us to pray for our enemies. And when we do that, in prayer, we're actually standing by the side of our enemy and pleading to God for him. And those two things go together. Praying for someone will actually increase our love. Because Think about this. You can't pray for someone without loving them. And similarly, if you pray for someone that you do not love, what is naturally going to happen is that you are actually going to grow in affection for that person. And here's why that's the case. Prayer forces us to be honest. A lot of times we think of prayer as 
this opportunity for us to go before God and change God's mind. Um, prayer, when it's described in Scripture, is much more about God working in us than it is about us working on God. And one of the ways prayer works on us is it forces us to see the world as God sees it. That's why Jesus will pray, thy kingdom come, your will be done. He's forcing us to see the world and other people as he sees them. And when we pray for our enemies, we can even see in them the dignity that they were created in the image of God. And our heart begins to soften for them. Is this too hard? Someone insults you, don't retaliate. If someone insults you, don't respond with a worse insult. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The famous British atheist in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Bertrand Russell, and he said, he's talking about this passage. He said, the Christian principle, love your enemies, is good. There's nothing to be said against it except that it's too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. It's too difficult. It's too hard. And, and, and if we're thinking about obeying every single little letter that Jesus talked about here, then yes, we, we will always fall short. But if we are talking about becoming the people Jesus is calling us to become, it will it be difficult? Absolutely. But it's possible. Will it be hard? Of course. Will it be challenging? Yes. It'll only be impossible if our heart has never been changed by Jesus. To do this is impossible apart from Jesus. But if Jesus has changed your heart, if he's transformed you, if he's in the business of transforming you, then this can slowly become part of the Christian life. And it will. Why? Because of what Paul says in Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Here's the reason we can pray for and love enemies. It's because in them we see a little bit of ourselves. The Bible says that in our sin, naturally we do not want the things of God and we're naturally opposed to him. We don't naturally want to serve other people. Uh, we don't naturally want to bring God glory. We want to bring ourselves glory. Uh, we don't naturally want to love others. We want to love ourselves. And, but God didn't leave us like that. God died for his enemies and spared us so that we can love other people. One author put it this way. Alfred Plummer says, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human but to return good for evil is divine. Jesus is calling us to love the people that are hard to love. And he goes on to say, you know, look, anyone can love someone that loves them back. The world does not need more people to love people that are easy to love. Our youngest daughter, Lucy, is great. Like, you can make her smile and laugh. She's the easiest little kid to love. She's fun to be around. She'll give you hugs. We don't, know, we don't need more people in the world that can love her. Anyone can love my daughter. The church doesn't need more people who can just love people that look like them and act like them. We need the world. The church needs people who are willing to love people who are hard to love.
Frederick Buechner put it this way, love for the enemy, the one who does not love you but mocks and threatens, that's God's love. And it conquers the world. That kind of love can change hearts. That kind of love can conquer the world. At the end of Les Mis, Jean Valjean, accomplished businessman, he's helped save numerous people's lives, adopted a Cosette. He ends up fighting in, in, in the revolution. Uh, and he ends up fighting against someone that has hounded him his whole life. Because while he was having this business success, while he was helping people, there was always this police officer, Javert, who was after him. Every step, wanted to take his daughter away, wanted to take his businesses away. And finally, he gets the opportunity. Javert is captured by the revolutionaries. Jean Valjean finds out and he has the opportunity to kill him. And he doesn't. He actually sets Javert free. How could he do that? Only because he knew, he saw something of Javert in him. Who is he? He was a convict who robbed a priest, but was loved and cared for. And that freed him up to actually love someone who hated him and persecuted him. When you and I see our sin for what it is, the way it hurts other people, the way it is against God, and when we see that God has died for enemies, then and only then will we be able to love our enemies and participate in a love that is conquering the world. Let me pray for us. Father, right now, Lord, we have an opportunity uh, to apply exactly what you have just asked us to do. And so we do that, Lord. I, I don't know the people who are involved in the lives of these students that have hurt them, but Lord, you do, and they do. And, and so right now, even as hard and as unnatural as it might be, Lord, we take a moment to pray for people who have hurt us and done evil to us. Lord, would you bring them to repentance? Would you heal their heart? Where they continue to resist and continue to act evil and unjustly, Lord, would you bring your justice to bear? And Father, would you help us to love the people that you have placed in our lives that are hard to love? Rather than seeking to escape, Lord, would you actually let us see them as an opportunity to participate in the same love that you loved us with while we were enemies? Lord, we need your help as we do this. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus.